Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Lord our God, in the, in the reading and the proclamation of your word, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts so that we may hear and understand your word. May we know and live according to your word and become living letters of your word, equipped to follow Jesus in every part of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord, the living word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you heard last week, last week we started a, a new series, a new teaching series for the new year, and we continue that series, perhaps in this 65-degree weather, a, a new season. So perhaps in this new season and in this new teaching series, God would bring about um, a revival of our hearts not just for our own lives, but for his kingdom. And so in this teaching series, we are going over the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is really the earliest summary that the early church gave in terms of summarizing what Jesus did and what the gospel is all about. So we are going through this series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're, ba- we're breaking down the Apostles' Creed phrase by phrase, to help us understand what it means to be unified in Christ. So the name of the the series for the next couple of months is called Unity. And we've chosen this theme of unity, especially as we're thinking about Grace Faith and City Grace potentially merging in the year 2020. It's a really exciting endeavor that both churches are are journeying on together, and we don't know the exact outcome of, of what will happen, but at the very least, we want to see the common ground that all Christians have, particularly City Grace and Grace Faith. So we're going back to a very historic confession, in fact, the the earliest historic confession, which is the Apostles' Creed. So if you are here last week, Pastor John started off this series talking about how I believe in God, or as he put it, we believe in God, that all of us, whether a Christian or non-Christian, have this divine sense, this, this sense of divinity even though we may or may not be able to articulate and confess that we actually believe in God, that whether you actually call yourself a Christian or not, there's this divine reflex, a divine sense that we all have inside of us, whether we are from America, whether or not we are from overseas, an international student, we all have this this divine sense. And so we're continuing this series talking about how we believe in God, And then as we go through the creed, it further defines what we mean by God. And so we're now moving on today talking about how, as Christians, the Christian belief is that God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, some of you may have heard of this this well-known saying, and the saying goes like this. It says, in essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So this quote uh, is sometimes attributed to Augustine, but uh, uh, historians are pretty, uh, in a a sense, have a consensus that this quote actually came from um, a, a German Lutheran theologian who's really not much known for other than this quote, but his name is uh, Rupert Melendez, and he succinctly summarizes what Christians should be about. 
which is that there are so many diverse expressions of Christianity. But what are the essentials that all Christians should be unified on? What are the, what are the non-essentials in which we can exercise liberty? Meaning that there are some areas in the faith in which we can agree to disagree on. And then lastly, in all things, all Christians are supposed to exercise charity or love in all things. So the Apostles' Creed, again, is focusing on what are the essentials of Christianity? What is the the bare minimum that all Christians are supposed to believe? All Christians believe more than what we find in the Apostles' Creed, but all Christians cannot believe less than what we find in the Apostles' Creed. So again, this morning we're talking about how Christians believe in Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so thinking about the the essentials, what are the essentials of Christian belief? It's in, in a sense trying to think about Christian belief or Christian theology from what you might call a a 10,000-foot view. So my wife and I, we just came back from Georgia about a week and a half ago, and we were getting a a literal 10,000-foot view of New York City. So walking around New York City, it's very easy to to look up to see all the the skyscrapers and, and the buildings, but when you look down, it's a different perspective. So sometimes, uh, you may have heard the phrase, don't lose the forest for the trees. We might say uh, the, urban, the urban way might be, don't lose the city for the buildings. So when we look down at the city, when we look down on how God sees things, the question is, what are the essentials? What do all Christians have to agree on? Because when we, when we look up, when we look at the buildings, or when we look at the trees, we can get distracted on what are some things that people usually get divided upon. The things that seem so insurmountable, the things that seem so, so big, and how can we, how can we ever scale or, or climb something like that? So we might think about Christ, Christians. There, there are so many Christians that believe that you should be a Republican. There are so many Christians that believe you should be a Democrat. There are so many questions in terms of how should the church respond to LGBT questions. There are Christians that are firmly Presbyterian, Christians that are firmly Baptists, Christians that are firmly Methodists. What, what is the true expression of the church? And what we're saying is those are all important questions. The church should deal with all those questions. But first, let's define what the essentials are. Let's define on what unifies us, not, what's the, not what divides us. So again, thinking about how all Christians believe in Father Almighty is what you might call a theology. And when you hear about that word theology, it scares certain people. Theology. It sounds, sounds very academic, sounds very abstract. It sounds like things that only pastors or ministers or people in full-time ministry, only those people think about that. But for the average churchgoer, for the average Christian, it doesn't seem like that would be something really all that important. But when we look through the Apostles' Creed, we see, we see that it is defining what this theology is and whether or not we like it, we might say that everyone here in this room is a theologian. Right? We all have a certain theology that we are living out, whether or not we 
can articulate it or explain it in certain ways, at the end of the day, we have a theology. In other words, we all have certain beliefs about God. Whether we call ourselves Christian, whether we consider ourselves Muslim, whether we consider ourselves an atheist, there's a, there's a theology, there's a belief about the world. There's a belief about the significance and the purpose of our own lives. It's a theology. So one of the first elements of theology is this idea that God can be related to as a father. Now, for, for those of you who have been in the church for a, for a long time, it's very easy to overlook this fact. We almost take it for granted, if you've been a Christian for quite some time, that we say when we pray, Father, our Heavenly Father. We just overlook it. But we miss the, the, the shock value, the shock value when Jesus comes on earth and calls God his Father. And by relation, understanding all Christians' ability to relate to God, not just as an abstract or deity or God who's far off, but a, a God who's, for some reason, uniquely interested in us because he's a father. Now, we need to also realize that even, even for people who believed in God, believers of God in the Old Testament, that this idea that God is actually a father was actually further off than we might realize. That for, for Jews, yes, they believed in the covenant God, Yahweh. True. And yes, there are also some, some references in the Old Testament to understanding God as a father. There are some references. But at the end of the day, rabbis, Jewish believers, theologians would say that understanding God as a father in Judaism it actually doesn't quite jive. Not quite the same way that Paul explains in, his, in Galatians. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 say, Because you are his sons, God sent the Son of his Spirit into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So, the way that Paul is describing how we can relate to God as a father, or more specifically, Abba, father, is distinct even in comparison to Judaism. So in looking at the world religions, Judaism and Christianity are side by side. There are so many similarities between Judaism and Christianity that one might mistake the fundamental belief and differences between Judaism and Christianity. It's why you often hear the phrase uh, Judeo-Christian values or Judeo-Christian beliefs. Why? Because there's so much, so much similarity, so much common ground between Judaic thought and Christian thought. But here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is explaining that the way Christians are able to relate to God is actually distinct even, even from Judaism, even from believers in the Old Testament. So Michael Byrd is um, an Australian theologian and New Testament scholar, and 
in the context of, of world religions and an understanding God as an Abba Father, the way that he defines it in Galatians, Bird says this, in other religions, calling God one, one's own father would be problematic, if not impossible. Crying out to God as father would be irreverent for Jews, blasphemy to Muslims, weird for Buddhists, and mean something entirely different for Hindus. Such a claim to enjoy God's fatherhood is crucial, however, for the Christian idea of God and for the distinctive nature of Christian worship. So again, placing this theology, this belief in God as a father, it's, it's alien in comparison to other religions. It's unique. It's completely unique and distinct even from the closest religion, Judaism. And the way that Paul describes Abba Father in Galatians chapter 4 is it's, a, it's exclamatory. It's a, it's a scream. It's not just saying God, Father, but it's a, it's a phrase that, that babies would utter, that children would utter. As, as children grow up, they, they learn language. And of course, one of the first words that they are able to utter in whatever language that might be would be Father or Dada or Papa. And so here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is talking about how this, this exclamatory phrase, it, it almost just bubbles up automatically from the believer because there's this desire to know God, not just as some distant, abstract deity, but as a close father, a father who's intimately interested in his children, the way any good father would be interested in their children. So how does this work out practically? In thinking about God, not just as an abstract deity who's far off, but as a father who is supremely interested in the needs of his children. So let me suggest one way, practically, which is to actually listen to how you pray. Thinking about how and listening to your own prayers. Because normally, we might listen to how someone else prays. So during the worship service, a pastor or someone else leads prayer and, and you hear how someone else prays. So let me suggest to you this morning to practically understand God as Father that you might yourself listen to how you pray. Because when, we listen, when you listen to how you pray, you can understand and think about how you are relating to who you're praying to. And if we are relating to God, as the Apostles' Creed defines, as Father Almighty, then there are at least two ways in which we can be listening to our own prayers. And that is with authority and with intimacy. Authority and intimacy. So intimacy first. So this is perhaps more obvious, but for, for any good father, right, any good father wants to, to know their children, not just on a superficial level, but on, on an intimate level, not just interested in what's going on, but how their children are feeling. Uh, so one time in preparing uh, to pray with, with other believers, uh, this group of people, we were thinking about how we ourselves feel as, as human beings. As human beings, we all experience a variety of emotions, 
And sometimes it's, it's hard to articulate and explain how we're actually feeling inside. And so we were relating that idea with, with prayer and thinking about how we can express how we feel to God. And one individual in the midst of our conversations blurted out a question. And the question was, when you pray, you tell God how you feel? He was, he was perplexed by the idea that as a Christian, we might be interested or being willing to tell God how we feel. Right? How we feel is, is part of who we are. It's, if someone doesn't know how we feel, we, they probably don't know us in any intimate way at all. So what we're saying is when you listen to yourself pray, the question is, are you praying in, in an intimate way? Is the, does the conversation sound far off, like you don't know the person or that God's not interested in knowing you intimately? Or is there, is there a closeness? Is there, is there a warmth in how you're praying? Because you can listen to, to that yourself, that as you speak, you can listen to how you're praying and determine whether or not this is intimate conversation. Is it intimate or is it far off? Secondly, with authority. So if God is our Father, if God is our, our Abba Father, then the conversation or the prayer, it's, it's not just intimate, there's, there's also a sense of authority. There's also a sense in which a son or a daughter understand their, their position as children of God. So some of you may know I come from a, a big family, and every once in a while my parents live in Queens, and so visiting their house in Queens, my routine usually is I open the door, I hug my parents, tell them I love them, tell them I miss them, and then I make a beeline for their refrigerator and freezer. <laughs> and because I come from a really large family, there's five sons, we actually ha have four refrigerators and freezers. <laughs> Pretend you didn't hear that. So I make a beeline for it because when I'm home, you know, I, I miss some of their cooking. Both of my parents cook to, to some extent. And so when I'm, when I'm at home in, in my, my father's house, my parents' house, I make a beeline for that because I'm hungry. And then also, at the very, when you see me make a beeline for it, I'm, I'm actually quite cavalier about it. It's like, this is my food. <laughs> you made this for me, didn't you? And of course, they're, they're loving and they're willing to cook anything up, warm anything up, cook something new, because I'm, I'm their son. I, w I walk into the house with, with a sense of authority. I belong there. I grew up there. That food in that one of those four refrigerators, <laughs> it's all mine. It belongs to me. So in our prayers to God, right, the question is, as we listen to those prayers, is there a sense of authority? that if God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and he made it all, then he can do anything. The question is, do we realize how much authority we have if we're believers? Because the authority that we have 
as believers is the same authority that Christ has as his son, which means we can claim what we deserve as children. It's ours, but we have to tell God about it. So in thinking about both intimacy and authority, also, as we listen to our own prayers, we can think about not just how we're praying now, but think about it in terms of how we were praying in the past. The question is, are we growing in intimacy and authority? And this is why it's important that we're listening to our own prayers, because we need a frame of reference to understand how we are spiritually growing. So in listening to our prayers now, the question is, are we growing in intimacy and authority compared from now to three months ago? Or from now to three years ago? Or from now to three decades ago? The question is, do your, do your prayers, do they sound the same? Do they sound the same in terms of intimacy and authority? Is, is there any change in the way you speak to God? Because if we're growing spiritually, if we're understanding and experiencing God as our Father, then we will actually hear a difference in the way we pray. And if we ourselves don't hear this difference, then perhaps someone else might. So perhaps you can ask your, your spouse or significant other or friend or relative that perhaps you've known for a while that perhaps you've prayed with before. Ask them. Has is the way that I'm praying now, is it any different than it was back then? Is it any different or does it sound the same? Because if it sounds the same, then perhaps there's been a, a spiritual plateau. Intimacy and authority. Secondly, uh, God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3 talks about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, well known for its understanding of faith. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do, do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What was seen was not made out of what is visible. Um, an Enlightenment philosopher and mathematician, G.W.F. Leibniz, once said that the first question we should rightly be asking is, why is there something rather than nothing? So in thinking about life, in thinking about this world, Leibniz says, a question we should be asking ourselves is, why is there something rather than nothing? Like, why does, why does life exist? Why does this universe exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? It's, it's a question that's quite profound. Perhaps, probably not a question that you wrestle with in the middle of the night that keeps you up at night unless you're a philosophy major. But regardless of your religious belief, again, there's, there's a theology there. So whether or not you consider yourself a Christian or you have other religious beliefs or non-religious beliefs, there's a theology there in terms of answering this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why? Is it just an accident? Was the universe always there? And is this just continuing on? 
Or is there some purpose? Is there some creator? Can we know this creator? Is it possible? The late Carl Sagan, in his uh, 1980 miniseries, it was entitled Cosmos, and he was uh, an astronomer from Cornell University. And every episode of this miniseries began like this. The cosmos is all that ever was, or is, or ever shall be. The cosmos is all that ever was, or is, or ever shall be. And every episode pounds that. The cosmos is all that there ever was, or is, or shall be. So he was an astronomer, mathematician, scientist. And what was his theology? The theology was the universe, it was just always there. It'll always be there. And we're just part of that universe. Nothing, nothing was created. No creator. It's just there. That's a, that's a theology. That's, that's a belief. That's one possibility. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, again says that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. That the world, that the universe was created because God commanded it. Because Father Almighty is also creator of heaven and earth. Some will say, as, as Sagan did, that the universe was, was always there, always will be there. But Hebrews chapter 11 is very clear, as the Apostles' Creed is clear, that everything that, has, that is created was created out of that which was not visible, meaning God. And before God spoke the world into, into existence, there was nothing. God created out of nothing. This is the theology of the Apostles' Creed. This is the theology of the Bible. There was nothing. So why did God create the world? Not because he was lonely. Not because he wanted people to love him. But for some reason, wanted to share in the love and the joy that God experienced in the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we will further define as this series goes on, because this is what the Apostles' Creed defines, as well as the Bible. This is all fundamental theology in which all Christians have common ground and are unified on. So, if God is the creator of heaven and earth, and Carl Sagan is not right, then one practical thing to do is listen Listen to the pronouns that you use. Listen to the pronouns that you use. So for those of you who are English majors or just really like grammar, uh, be remi- you, might not, you might already know this, but for those of you who really don't give a look about grammar, pr- the pronouns, right, pronouns are basically words that substitute for nouns. So pronouns that we typically use are I, you, he, she, it, we, you, and they. Those are pronouns. They substitute for nouns. But the pronouns that I'm suggesting that we can listen for are my and mine. So the question is, in conversation, how often do we speak 
and live out these pronouns, my and mine. Because uh, our pronouns and our language, they, they reveal on some level what we think about our own lives, what we think about our possessions, what we think about our careers, what we think about the gifts that we have in life, what we think about our family. We love to say and we live our lives saying my and mine. So we might say things like, I'm not sure if this is really worth my time. Did you hear that pronoun? My time. Or I'm not giving my money to that cause. It's my money. Or, you know, why should I let them tell me what to do with what's mine? Right? Very easy to overlook these pronouns. But if this is true, that God is the creator of heaven and of earth, then there's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper who famously said this, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So what Kuiper is suggesting, right, is that if God is creator of heaven and earth, then the arts, the sciences, the po politics, and the public square, economics, wealth, every square inch of our own individual lives, Jesus says mine. He says it's mine. Every square inch, every square inch of the United States, every square inch of Iran, every square inch of City Grace, every square inch of Grace Faith, every square inch of your life, every square inch of my life. Christ says mine. So listen to the pronouns that you use. Because in our sin and our brokenness, right, there's, there's this tug of war between us and, and Jesus. We're saying, my and mine, and Jesus is saying, every square inch of the entire domain of human existence, Jesus says, mine. Discipleship, you might say, then, is, this, is a process of, of releasing these pronouns, releasing these possessive pronouns, right? My and mine, they're possessive pronouns. They declare possession. And yet the heart of the gospel is that Jesus was willing to release possession of his own life and therefore is able to say over every square inch of human existence and over every square inch of the human domain, Jesus says, mine. So we need to recognize in our own life the many areas, even the smallest ones, right? Which is why Kuiper says every square inch. Not every square foot, not every square mile, every square inch. Because in our human brokenness, we tend to give Jesus some parts of our life, but not all of it. 
You could have maybe my family. You can have my friends, but not my finances. Right? We have this tendency to safeguard certain areas of our life and say, God can have this part, but this part is mine. This square inch is mine. So the question is, what area of your life are you struggling to let Jesus say mine? Because there's every single heart in this room has that tendency to say this square inch. Just, just, just this one. Just let me keep this one. And yet Jesus says mine. So as we continue to go through this, the essentials of, of Christian belief, continuing this series on the Apostles' Creed, remember that belief in theology, which is what the Apostles' Creed defines, it has implications and applications for our life. All of it. So listen to the way that you pray. Are you growing in intimacy and authority? Listen to the way you converse. How often do you use those pronouns, my and mine? Ask God to search your hearts to see if there, if there is any square inch we claim as our own that Jesus wants to say mine. Why? Because God is Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray. I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to, to pray, either silently or you can whisper there at your seat. But as God moves your heart, pray as you normally would. And as you pray as you normally would, listen to yourself. Again, either silently or if you want to pray out loud, pray out loud. But we don't want this message to just be packed up. We want, we want to live out the implications and the applications of the scripture right now. So pray and listen to yourself pray. God, we acknowledge that you are Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
God, may that be not just something that we recite in the Apostles' Creed, but something that we experience on a daily basis. God, may you change our hearts, change the way that we pray, change the way that we relate to you. May we speak to you with, with more intimacy and more authority. God, would you help us release to you what you want us to release? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.